Well, good morning. Good to see you all. Uh, if you're a guest here, my name is Drew, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we'll be opening up God's Word together now. So if you would, grab your Bibles and turn to Psalm 111. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's some under chairs nearby you, and you can find the Psalms right in the middle um, of the Bible. And so this is the last Psalm that we will have in our series on the Psalms. And uh, next Sunday, well, this isn't last Psalm. Next Sunday, actually, is the last Psalm. Last Psalm I'll be doing. Next Sunday, we have a guest with us, Colin Smith, who's been here uh, before, and he'll be opening up uh, the final Psalm in the series with us. And then the Sunday after that, we'll begin a new series that I'm really excited about uh, in the Gospel of Mark. And so you can even be thinking ahead to that and reading ahead to that. I'll have more information uh, coming soon about that as well. So let's read Psalm 111 together. Uh, as we uh, begin here. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is His work, and His righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wonders or his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word. And as we've just sung we do continue to pray that you would teach us to love your word and through your word to know you, to love you, uh, to receive all that you have for us through your word. So please transform us by the power of your spirit. Help us understand who you are revealed in scripture and in your son. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the first phrase of this psalm, which is actually uh, repeated in a lot of the surrounding psalms in the next few in this altar is praise the Lord. So Christians talk a lot about praising the Lord. Uh, but there are two potential problems that can come up. Uh, one is do we mean it uh, when we say it? So we may sometimes not remember what we actually mean when we say that. We see it abbreviated in social media and in text as PTL. Some say praise the Lord anytime something good happens and that's all fine and can be very good. Uh, but we can use that phrase so frequently that we can perhaps sometimes not be thinking of what we actually mean when we say it. We can stop engaging our minds and our hearts with the words that come out of our mouth. And so we can end up saying, praise the Lord, and not actually praise Him. Another potential problem is not just do we mean it, but what do we mean by it? Uh, even when we do think about it, we may not realize just what it means to praise the Lord. And so Psalm 111 helps us to realize that true praise is perhaps deeper than we may have thought. This psalm gives us an example 
of true praise and what it looks like to do it well. This psalm gives us a thick vision of what it means to live a life that expresses praise to the Lord verbally. And so here's the insight of this psalm. True praise is fueled by a joyful study of God and His works in our world. So true praise is fueled by a joyful study of God and His works in our world. So this psalm shows us that when we delight in and study God's works, we'll be led into true praise. So this psalm really is what it's doing is it's giving us a model for praise. It's in the first person. You may have noted that. It seems very personal, one person writing this. But the very fact that it's in the Psalter means it was not meant to stay private. It was actually written for the people of God to join in this psalm in the praise to God. So in other words, this is showing us and inviting us into true praise. So it begins with the phrase, praise the Lord, but it doesn't stop there. It actually shows us what it looks like. And so there's three main parts to this psalm, and we'll walk through each of them. And here's what we'll see. We'll see the expression of praise, the content of praise, and the integrity of praise. So it's expression, it's content, and it's integrity. So first, it's expression. So we see that the psalm opens with this command to praise the Lord, and then he starts actually doing it in front of us and inviting us to join him. So let's look at verses 1 and 2 again, showing us what praise looks like. He says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright, in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. So this shows us uh, four aspects, at least, of uh, true praise. So first, we see it's intentional. Notice that he doesn't just say at the beginning, I'm thankful. He doesn't just say, be thankful. He doesn't just encourage a grateful attitude in life. He doesn't just encourage us to live in a state of being thankful. Notice he says, I will give thanks to the Lord. Right? He's saying, I am going to do an action that is observable, uh, and he's going to praise God directly. He's committing to praise God. So there's an intentionality here. Second, it's wholehearted. He says, I'll give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. So not just with my lips. He doesn't just encourage uh, praising with lips, but praising with lips as an expression of the heart, which the Bible says is really the deepest part of us. Not just our feelings, but really the core of our personality, where our deepest motives and interests and desires are. He's saying, from the core of who I am, I'll give thanks to the Lord. Notice third, at least in this case, it's communal. There's an important place for personal private praise, but this gives us an example of the importance of public praise as well. He says in verse 2, he'll give thanks in the company of the upright, in the congregation. He's not, of course, referring there to in the company of sinless people. The upright in the Old Testament referred to those who are in a covenant relationship with God. They recognize their sinners, they receive the sacrifice for forgiveness, and the Lord is transforming them to obey Him. So that's the upright here. And uh, this is what we're doing when we give thanks and praise during songs. It's what we're doing when we're giving thanks and praise during prayers. It's also what we do when we share with one another what God has done in our lives. That's why we had these grace moments that we heard from Austin sharing even this morning. That's a form of public thanks to the Lord for what he's done in our lives. And there's one more aspect of true praise here. Notice it's fueled by joyful study. It's the outcome 
of study that's driven by delight. Look at verse 2. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. So put it another way, everyone who delights in God's works will study them. They are studied by all who delight in them. They'll search them out. They'll want to learn more about who God is and what He does. Now, this is true of all of life, actually, isn't it? You study what you delight in. Obviously, you can be forced to study something you do not delight in, so I don't mean to make light of seasons of life or courses you may be going through that are painful. Um, But very often, at least think of the category of self-directed study. We study, and it's often driven by desire. All of you teachers, whether public or private or homeschool, this is an ideal philosophy of education, isn't it? For students to be delighted in the subject, and that the delight drives curiosity and interest and study. Learning driven by delight. That's the goal of education and an educational philosophy here. So I saw this principle at work in my own life as I just reflected back. I see both negatively and positively. I didn't really enjoy learning when I grew up. Uh, I didn't particularly hate it. I just didn't pay much attention. I didn't like reading. I found ways to get decent grades by skipping a lot of reading, um, actually. And so as I look back at my high school years, though, I do remember reading two books. And they weren't ones I had to read for a class. I don't know that I read straight through and finished any book I was supposed to read, but I did read two. And they were biographies. One was a biography on Bo Jackson and the other on Michael Jordan. (laughs) Nobody made me read those, right? It was delight driving my study. I read them because I wanted to. And actually now, I do enjoy studying and learning. Everything changed for me when I went to college. Two things actually happened. First, the Bible came alive to me. I wanted to know God. Who is He? What is this world He's made? What is this incredibly complex and beautiful book uh, that has challenging things in it? And yet, the more I press in, the more I see wonders. So, the Bible came alive. I wanted to read through the Psalms, read through Romans, read through Ephesians, and I wanted to understand it. And the second thing that happened to me is I found out that there were actually books out there that help you understand God in the Bible. I just didn't pay attention. So um, I can actually still remember being in a bookstore and finding C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, and grabbing that and reading it. And then I would ask uh, my brother who was at Bible school um, at the time. I was at a different college, and I'd ask him questions, and he'd photocopy chapters from a systematic theology and send them to me. And I'm thinking well, this is incredible. That, like all the questions I have, people have actually wrestled with and helped me. Like see in the Bible, there's answers to wrestle and uh, uh, topics to wrestle with and answers you can find. And so I found sermons by Martin Luther. I found John Calvin's Institutes of a Christian Religion. And so all of a sudden I was studying and I delighted in these things. And so you may not think of yourself as a reader or a student, but do you ever do deep dives into anything? Do you ever do extended research on vacation destinations or on investments? Can you tell me the sports stats of your favorite players um, or teams? Do you listen extensively to podcasts on certain topics? So that's a form of studying, and your delight is driving it. And so the question often is not, do I like to study or do you like to study? It's really, what do you delight in? 
you study what you delight in. And because you end up studying in some way or one in some way or another, it's helpful to ask what you delight in. So to apply this topic to praise, verse two is saying, true praise, full praise, deep praise, expressive praise will come when you delight in God's works. And that delight drives you to search them out and study. So let's bring this together. Praise is intentional. It's not just I'm in a state of thankfulness. There's an expression of praise. It's wholehearted in the deepest part of who we are. It's, it is in part and at times communal. It's an element of it, not always. And it's fueled by joyful study. So that's the expression of praise. Now second, what's the content of praise? Well, the rest of this psalm through verse 9 shows us the content. It gives us an example of the kind of praise we're invited to join in on. There's many of these examples throughout the Psalter, so this isn't exhaustive, but it is one good example of a model of praise. And the key word in this section is works. We saw this in verse 2, great are the works of the Lord. Look at verse 3, full of splendor and majesty is His work. Verse 4, he has caused his wondrous works to be remembered and so forth. I love that phrase. In verse 4, the wonderful works of God. That's the title of a great book I read these past uh, few months. I've shared that in another context as well. It's a book by Herman Bavink, a Dutch theologian from the past century, recent century, and he wrote a book called The The Wonderful Works of God. Um, And he says in the introduction to that book that he got that title from Acts chapter 2, when Jesus' disciples, so after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, his disciples are gathered together, the Holy Spirit comes, and they start speaking in other languages, the languages of people that are around them in the city of Jerusalem at the time, and they start spontaneously speaking, and the book of Acts says that they were proclaiming the wonderful works of God. That's what the Spirit came to announce through the disciples in these other languages to the nations. It's a little picture of what it means to share the gospel, to evangelize, to take the gospel to our neighbors and the nations. We declare the wonderful works of God. Uh, Here's how Bavink put it. The Spirit was poured out precisely so the church would come to know these works of God, to glory in them, and to thank and praise God for them. So one reason why the call to praise in this psalm is so fitting is because faith is not just about agreeing to facts. It's about knowing the one true God and learning about his wonderful works in the world. We often use two categories to refer to God's works. I think these are a helpful set of categories. His works in creation and his works in redemption. And this psalm is inviting us to praise God for both of them. So think of his works in creation in general. God has revealed himself in creation. Psalm 19 says the heavens are declaring the glory of God, right? The sky is proclaiming like speech is coming out as we see the clouds and the sunsets and the stars. It's speaking to us about God. Romans 1 says that God's divine power and his eternal nature are seen in creation. We learn about God as we see all of his his works in creation around us. So when we think about different topics even, when we study math, we're seeing how God gave intricate order to the world. As Austin even said, God gave him a gift for numbers. Uh, And so the Lord has built 
reality in such a way that expresses something of what he's like. When we study science, we see the details of how God made the world. When we study astronomy, we're seeing the galaxies and wonders that God put out there for us to search out. When we study psychology, we're learning how God made our minds to work, or since Genesis 3, how they often don't work as they were intended to work. When you plant a seed in the garden, uh, and this incredibly complex And yet, at one level, simple to observe, reality takes place. Dirt and water and then sunlight. I mean, it doesn't take too much, and and you have this little seed, and then in a few months you're eating strawberries or onions. I mean, it's incredible. It's a marvel. It's a wondrous work of God. And we can study it out and look at all the details of how this happens and all of its complexity. And yet the Lord has ordained that that's how it works because this is his wondrous work, so that we look at that and we say, wow, and then we praise him. So we praise God for his work of creation, but we also praise him for his work in redemption. And this is actually the main focus of this psalm. Whenever I read this psalm in the past, I thought it was just a general list of God's works. I didn't think it had any particular focus or structure. It wasn't until actually studying this week that I was surprised to find that this actually does focus in particular on God's works of redemption, and in particular, the history of God's redemption from Exodus to Joshua, from the Exodus with Moses to the entrance of the land, the conquest of the land with Joshua. So I want to show you this in the psalm. So let's just walk through these verses um, together so you can see that this is actually focusing on the story of redemption in a, an elusive way, but it is clearly uh, what is in mind, at least in part here. So look at verse 4. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. Now, the original Hebrew word for wondrous works is unique. It's often used to refer to God's works of redemption, and in particular, often the rescue of Israel from Egypt to the Exodus. And then he says he's caused his wondrous works to be remembered, and that's probably a reference to the Passover. When God rescued Israel from Egypt in that wondrous work, he then instituted actually the night of the Exodus redemption. You can read in the book of Exodus, he, he instituted the Passover not just as a moment where they would take the blood of a lamb and put it over the doorposts and God would pass over them. He instituted it to be a feast for them to remember. He said, this is, this is your New Year's Day. This is the, the first day of the year for you now, and you're going to have a, a, a celebration in remembrance of this redemption every year from here on out. He instituted a remembrance of his wondrous work so that they would remember their salvation. And then Israel was brought to Mount Sinai. God revealed the heart of his character there in Exodus 34 um, in a sentence that echoes and reverberates through all of Scripture after it, and we hear it echoed and quoted here in verse 4. The Lord is gracious and merciful. And then verse 5, he provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. A general statement, and yet, thinking back to this story, he provided manna and quail for them in the wilderness. He was remembering and being faithful to his covenant promises to Abraham to develop Abraham's line into this nation. And then he led Israel to the land of Canaan with Joshua, and he conquered the evil nations that were there, and he gave Israel the land. That's what verse 6 summarizes. He has shown his people the power of his works. That sounds pretty general, but then specific, in giving them the inheritance of the nations. And that's how that land was viewed, as the Lord giving Israel, the inheritance of the land. And the story continues. Verses 7 to 9 have a repeated word forever. The story doesn't end there. It goes on forever. 
His word and his works are established forever. And so we've now seen how the story does unfold beyond when the psalmist wrote this. Um, in fact, uh, I'm not going to go into much detail here. Happy to have a conversation about it later. Or you can reach out. But even the way that this, the book of Psalms is structured uh, indicates that those who put the Psalms together are thinking in terms of how this psalm continues the story on beyond. Because the, the book of the Psalms moves from David in all of his struggles and sufferings and laments into his receiving his kingship in a kingdom to the establishment of the kingdom under Solomon, and then everything falls apart in exile. And so there's five books to the Psalms, and the fifth book begins with the rescue from exile, at least in part. And this is at the beginning of the fifth book. And so it's placed here with other psalms with this focus on the Lord's brought us back, but we are not yet fully redeemed. We're longing for more. We need God's kingdom to come. And so the story is continuing, and we've seen how it continues beyond. We've seen God's wonderful works and wondrous works continue to unfold in the world, and the greatest turning point was the coming of Jesus and the wondrous work of the Incarnation where God fulfills his promises both to send a true human king to rule his people and yet himself to come and rescue and lead his people. And we see those come together in the person of Jesus, truly God, truly man. And then we see the marvels he did in all of his miracles of healing and in his teaching with authority that people even marveled at um, and with his cross and resurrection. You know, the apostle John in his gospel, refers repeatedly to Jesus being uh, where we see the glory of God in his incarnation and then in his miracles. He says the disciples beheld his glory and then the cross itself is viewed as this radiant, beautiful shining of glory, veiled to the eyes who couldn't see it, right? The cross is gory. And yet, understanding that God is up to something here, we then see the expression of the heart of God for sinners in having Jesus bear the weight of hell for us and doing it with a willing heart of love to rescue you and I forever. That's glory. That's a God who is abounding in grace and mercy and steadfast love for sinners and upholds justice by condemning sin, but not in us, but in Christ, so that all who trust him would have him as their truest friend. And then his resurrection, conquering sin and death and the power of sin over our life and the, the pouring out of the Spirit so that the church proclaims the wondrous works of God to the nations. And that's happened for 2,000 years, which is why if you are sitting here and you have heard the wondrous works of God, you are a result of God working in history by the Spirit to spread the gospel. And so we have come to know this God through those wondrous works. If you have not yet trusted in Christ, you are welcome to do so. You are invited to do so today because Jesus is the King and he is making salvation available to any and all, no matter how good or bad you perceive yourself to be. He welcomes you by grace and so you trust him. And then we look forward to the great wondrous work of Jesus returning to what will it be like to make all things new to restore the world, in a sense, back to the way it was in Eden, but infinitely better, and who could know what it's going to be like? And so the story keeps going, and we see his wondrous works. So here's what we're seeing. This psalm is leading us to joyfully study the wondrous works of God, and let that joyful study result in 
praise. It leads us to delight in the story of redemption in history. It leads us to delight in the life uh, and the work of Jesus Christ, as we'll do in the Gospel of Mark in coming weeks. In other words, it leads us to delight in and study what theologians call biblical theology. Biblical theology is the study of God's plan of redemption through history from Genesis to Revelation. This was the focus of the women's conference in this weekend, which many of you women were participating in. So if, if you who were there at that workshop this past weekend, if you delighted in that, in studying God's wondrous works from Genesis to Revelation, from creation to new creation, and seeing this beautiful unified plan that God's unfolding in history, if you delighted in that, you are doing what this psalm is talking about. You were delighting in and studying the wonderful works of God. And we see God's unfolding plan of grace through the Bible. The Bible is not just a random collection of morals and tales. It's an ultimately unified story of God's plan of redemption for those who are wayward and his restoration of creation. And so this psalm is inviting us to delight in it, to enjoy this, to do a deep dive in the Bible for a whole life and study it out and then praise him for it. This psalm explains what happened to me in college. Um, I even remember reading the Bible. I learned various aspects of theology, but when I started studying biblical theology, the, the unified story of Scripture, and seeing how the whole Bible fit together, that's when things started clicking for me at a new level. And I'd read individual parts of the Bible and understand the whole better. And then I'd read through the whole and it helped me understand every individual text better. I loved seeing that it was a story of grace for sinners through Jesus. And the more I read parts of the Bible, the more the whole made sense and the more my life made sense because this isn't just a Bible story. This is the story of humanity and history. It's the true story of the world. So I'm understanding who I am and who you are and how this all fits together. And it leads then to a whole new level of delight in God and a deeper praise of Him. So that's the content of praise. Final point briefly from verse 10, the integrity of praise. We saw at the beginning here that praise is intentional, it's wholehearted, it's communal, it's driven by joyful study, and the final verse shows us it also is to be integrated with our whole life. Praise is to be an outflow of faith and obedience and delighted study. Uh, Our praise with our lips should not be disconnected from our way of life. There should be an integrity between our everyday lives and moments of praise. So look at how the psalm ends in verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and all those who practice it have a good understanding. Isn't that interesting? After this psalm of praise and delight in God, it ends with this very practical note of the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and all who practice it um, have this wisdom. And so the fear of the Lord is the Old Testament way of referring to true faith trusting in Christ with deep reverence in all of life. And this kind of fear or trust is the beginning of wisdom. If you have read the Bible for any number of years, you've been familiar with this phrase, and it may recall the book of Proverbs. It's the key phrase in the book of Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or the beginning of wisdom. It's the first principle to the wise life. It's the foundation for the wise life. And wisdom is about living well in God's world. That's what the book of Proverbs is about, and this is saying that if you want to live well in the world God has made, you need wisdom for it. You need to know how the world works. And the beginning of that, the foundation of that, the first principle of that is the fear of the Lord. 
is trusting the Lord with all your heart in all of life with deep reverence. So this is what it means to become a Christian. You step into trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your King and as your friend. And this is what it means to continue as a Christian, uh, being united to him by faith and walking in faith with him. And verse 10 says this is to be practiced. So it's about walking in faith-filled obedience to Jesus Christ in all of life, which doesn't mean that we're perfect, but it does mean we're progressing in the power of the Spirit. We're truly following Christ. So here's the point of this verse for you and I. Our lips here on Sunday, what we say, need to match our lives on Monday. That's the point. There needs to be an integrity. You know, you think of a structure, a building, and there needs to be integrity. There needs to be an integrity with our whole life in everyday life between Monday to Saturday and then Sunday or other times that we would be praising God. There needs to be an integrity between our public expressions of praise and our private life of faith. So if you say praise the Lord, but you don't actually care about him uh, during the week, that's a problem. Jesus quoted from the book of Isaiah when he was addressing people that had this disconnect. And he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. And his point isn't just that they're doing it without emotion. Remember, heart, this is the core of our personality. This is our motivational center. In fact, Jesus goes on to say uh, that the issue is that in having a heart that's far from God, it's that their lives are contradicting their praise because out of the heart, the life comes. So Jesus went on to say, from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. So Jesus was confronting people who lacked integrity with their worship. Their lips worshiped, and yet their heart was far from them, which was evident in the way they lived in everyday life. And so this psalm is here to show us what it looks like when they do match. When we praise God out of a heart that trusts Him with true reverence. So again, it doesn't mean that we don't sin. It means that we're honest about it. And that by the power of the Holy Spirit, there's measured change. And there's fresh forgiveness moment by moment. So this psalm gives us a model then of what true praise can look like. It shows us the true expression of praise. It shows us the content of praise. And it shows us the integrity of praise. And so as we step away and think about what it looks like to live in light of this, I just want us to see how this leads us to hold a few things together that we can tend to separate or forget that they belong together. So just three of them briefly as we think about um, getting this worked out in our lives. First, notice how this keeps together deep thinking and expressive praise. So head and heart, in other words. This psalm is filled with exuberance. It's filled with emotion. It's an example of overflowing praise. And yet, it also shows us that this is the result of deep thinking and study. It's the result of knowing God's words works deeply and delighting in them. So this leads us to keep our heads and our hearts together, right? Some of us may be more thoughtful than studious. If that's you, then the encouragement to you from this psalm is to let your study of God's world and His Word fuel emotive praise and public praise. Let it lead you to express great joy in God 
In other words, don't let your knowledge of God outpace your worship of God. That was something I remember uh, talking about with um, people through grad school. We're spending all this time studying, and it is a good and right thing. And the important thing is to not let and to, to fight for it not to happen that our knowledge of God would outpace our worship of Him, but rather that our knowledge of God, as it increases, it should fuel our worship of Him. Others of you, though, may be more joyfully praising God, less studious. So if you delight in God and love to praise Him, then let this psalm lead you to take intentional steps to study Him more deeply, to get to know Him through His Word and world more deeply. Grow in your theology and your grasp of God's Word. Uh, the women who were at the workshop this past weekend, I know there was lots of great resources recommended. Uh, pick one, grab that resource, work through it with another friend. Uh, we have resources at the resource corner for this purpose, even some resources that help us grasp biblical theology and the story of God and His wonderful works unfolding in the Bible. So, keeping deep thinking and delighted praise together, head and heart. Second, this leads us now to hold together our appreciation of God's works in creation and redemption. God has revealed Himself in the world and it, through His Word. He reveals Himself in creation. He reveals Himself in redemption. So some of you love reading the Bible, you love reading theology, but you don't as quickly or as often look out in the world with wide-eyed wonder at a toad or an acorn, right? I mean, just the wonder that's before us. So your study of works of redemption uh, is good and important, but make sure you're also having your eyes open to see the wonders of seeing a seed turn into something that gives you strawberries. Others of you may enjoy seeing God's glory in creation and in nature. You love studying math or science or other subjects, but you don't read the Bible much at all. You're not really that interested, and you don't pick up Bible-saturated books that help you know God. If that's you, remember that the primary works in this psalm that God is celebrating, or that this man is celebrating, are God's works in redemption. He's spoken to us in His Word. He's revealed Himself in Jesus, and so let's be driven to see His glory in that way as well. So as you read the Bible, keep your eyes open to see God's big story and the story of salvation in Jesus. And then finally, this urges us to bring together our public praise in our everyday lives. This psalm shows us that true praise flows from a life of faith. And so in the home, at work, at school, um, let's not just think of God's works in the morning or on Sundays, but throughout the day, and let it lead to praise of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for creating a wonder world and placing us in it. We thank you that you have given us eyes so that we can behold your beauty and creation and ears to hear the wonders around us. We thank you that you have spoken to us. We thank you that you have worked to unfold a plan of redemption through history to rescue us. And that in this story, you reveal what you're like, a God of grace and mercy. And so we pray that as we study your word, you would kindle fresh delight in you and that we would be a people who praise you and who speak to friends and neighbors and the nations about the, your wonderful works in Jesus. Amen.